As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. It's like we were locked in and we couldn't save the world. And all of a sudden somebody's opened the door and there's actual chance for us to save the world. And so I am more motivated, more excited, more interested, more determined than I have been at any time since Eco America started because I see the way to go to get us out of this giant mess that we're in. Hello. This is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Bob Perkowitz, who is a longtime and successful corporate CEO who decided to tackle climate change and founded an organization called Eco-America. Eco-America builds institutional leadership, public support, and political resolve for climate solutions in the United States. I think Bob's story is instructive for other political entrepreneurs. I learned how he built his experience, skills, and confidence to run big businesses, how he met his wife, Lisa Renstrom, who had a long history in leadership with national environmental organizations, and who motivated him to put Eco-America together, and what Eco-America has done so far and plans to do going forward. I found Bob's very positive take on the recent climate provisions in the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act heartening. Bob is an excellent guest, and I hope you will listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Bob Perkowitz. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Bob. Hi, Nathaniel. How are you? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? No, not at all. I'm Bob Perkowitz. I live in Washington, D.C. with my wife, Lisa Renstrom. I have four beautiful grandkids under eight years of age. But my background has mostly been in the corporate world. I grew up in Chicago and I've run a few smaller companies and a couple of larger businesses with thousands of employees. Over the last decade, I've gotten more and more into climate change and doing whatever we can to save the world with Eco-America in particular. It seemed like the first company that you got going, which was had to do with window treatments, preceded college. Is that right? Yeah. Neither of my parents went to college and they wanted me to go to college, but they had nine kids and didn't have the wherewithal to do that. So I worked for about four years before I went to college and graduate school. Was that a company you started or did you work for a company that had already been started? 
The family business started in 1891 making parasols, picture frames, and window shades. And when I got out of, I worked there when I was in high school, and I had some ideas that made the business more successful. As a graduate from high school, they didn't want to pay me very much money, so I moved 30 miles away, and I opened up my own retail business when I was 19 years old. Started a manufacturing company when I was 21, and then by the time I got to be 23, 24, I was able to afford college, and I kept working and going to school full-time at the same time. I'm kind of curious about that move to kind of go out on your own. I mean, that takes a bit of gumption. Tell me about your, your state of mind at that time. I think part of it is like acorn not falling far from the tree, that kind of stuff. And my father was always very entrepreneurial. The whole family was always very entrepreneurial. You know, when they had a problem, like my wife says, when you have a problem, you start a business or you start an organization. Most people try to find another way to solve the problem. And uh, that's what I knew is that people start businesses, make things happen, create things. That's what I grew up with. And And so that was my solution at that time. I mean, you go out and you work and you're making like $4.35 an hour and just wasn't enough to afford anything. So the only way I could do it is creating something that created equity. Usually a first business like that is very formative. What did you take from that several years of effort in building that that you brought forward with you? One of the things, and this might sound weird, but I was pretty successful when I did my retail business. And when I wanted to start manufacturing, somebody said, go to a bank and borrow money. And and I went to my local bank and I said, I want to do this. And they gave me a few hundred thousand dollars. It just opened me up to a whole world. And then I realized that, you know, how little I knew and that I better get to gosh darn college and get to business graduate school and get through all that just so I could understand the spectrum of potential out there. But I bet you there's more than that, too. I mean, did you have employees? Oh, you had to have, right? So, like, what what did you learn about leadership and management and things along those lines? Having spent all my high school years working in a business that had 17, 20 employees, I saw how people were managed and things. I don't think that I really learned at scale how to be a good manager, how to do strategy, how to do marketing, how to do that stuff from my retail experience. I was just too young and it's Highland Park, Illinois. It's just too easy. You know, just advertise in the local paper, people come, you sell them stuff. I learned responsibility. I learned that nothing happened unless I had to stepped in on it. I did not become a good manager until I was probably 27, 28 years old. Then I started you know, I would literally go away and I'd take a four-day strategy class at University of Wisconsin or four-day. I learned how to be very good at running businesses. You went to Lake Forest College. How was that experience? Lake Forest College is a small liberal arts school with like 1,100 students. I went there because I was already going into school. I was like 24, 25 years old going into college. So I was older than everybody. I didn't want to take all the 101 courses, right? And so they had a program called Social Thought, and they had another program called the College Scholar Program. They didn't. The College Scholar Program enabled me to create the Social Thought Program. So what I did is I had to write up my own path of learning economics, sociology, politics. I wanted to learn about society from a liberal arts perspective because I knew I was going to do business when I got done with that. I did a lot of math. I did a lot of physics. I did a lot of things that 
did not become super useful. But I got my degree in, as a college scholar in social thought in a blend of social sciences, invaluable. that I can talk about almost anything because literature, whatever, I've been through that cycle. Was there a particular author or thinker that that you were really taken by? When I went in there to design my curriculum, I surveyed all of the faculty of the school. And I said, what were the five best books you've ever read in your life? And what are the five best books you ever did in the last five years? And so it's a great book's theory of learning. Mortimer Adler, the great philosopher, uh, American guy, taught me all that kind of stuff. So there's a whole lot of stuff that I learned from a lot of people. But some of the professors there... There's a, a Belgian guy by the name of Leo F. Van Hoy who died, I don't know how long ago, but he would give you a book to read and he'd say, okay, take every chapter and turn it into a paragraph and, and then take every paragraph and turn it into a sentence and then turn the whole book into one sentence, right? Everything about the book. And he just taught me how to just be a real critical thinker about it. And I probably went through a dozen books in that class with him, but it was just a, a great way of learning about not wasting time, getting to the most important facts in the heart of matter. And there's another guy, Rand Smith, who might still be alive, who's a young professor who did the politics side of things with me. And so, I, you know, lots of books, lots of authors, the, the professors there and the atmosphere of being in a liberal arts school was really what was best for me. And did you just proceed directly to get the MBA there? I overlapped the last year of full-time undergraduate with the first year of full-time graduate while I was running the manufacturing business. I got divorced twice when I was very young because I was very busy and determined to get things done. So I, I overlapped the two. Lake Forest Graduate School of Management was very close. It is run by big corporations like Motorola and at that time Sears. And that's where they would stick their people that they wanted to get a graduate degree. So the graduate thing, besides teaching me all the MBA skills, I did marketing and international management. It socialized me in how big companies and, and people think and, and teamwork with a group of eight peers putting together projects, the usual kind of business graduate school stuff. A lot of people in the political and policy world are not really familiar with the MBA world, right? I mean, there is overlap and there are people who bring those skills into progressive politics, say. What was it about that program that you were so sure that you were going down that road and that you and that you took from it? In graduate graduate school, I was trying to figure out how to make money because my parents always worried about money all their lives and trying to take care of this large family. And I just wanted that cloud to be gone for me. So it, I wasn't thinking about the longer term thing about nonprofits versus for profits, but the association you just made is, is a super powerful one. You know, when I went into having served for six years on the board of the Sierra Club Foundation, 14 years with EDF, still on an advisory board there. You know, I spent a lot of time in those and other nonprofits. They were very, very different from businesses. And when I decided to do Eco America and do what that thing is doing, the lady who I hired to be is currently executive director, managed the Barbie doll brand and did marketing for big financial firms, American Express. I brought in people that thought like business people because, you know, 
everything is measurable, everything you get done and you get, get scored on. And it's, if you walk into the nonprofit world, you walk into a world of almost no metrics in many cases. And it's just really hard to get people kind of focused the way that business people focus. So I think that my business background has been a big asset in, in being able to accomplish what we've accomplished with Eco America. Tell me a little bit about your business career post MBA. What did you tackle first and how did it go? Well, I did the retail business and then I did the manufacturing business, which had, uh, and I had them both for a little while. Then I sold the retail business to focus full time on manufacturing. It was manufacturing custom window coverings. Business was called Tempo Industries Inc., based in Chicago, Illinois. We expanded to Minneapolis, we expanded to Indianapolis, started doing the Midwest. And then I realized I could buy companies. I bought a company in Florida. I bought a company in uh, Santa Monica, California. And I became the largest regional manufacturer. Of, there were three or four big national guys, and I became a big regional guy. E2 Holdings decided they had a company called Home Fashions Inc., which owned two of the big window coverings companies in America. I was their largest customer. They went and decided to sell that division. And through a couple of permutations, when I was 34 years old, I borrowed at that time an astonishing sum of money, $89 million, and I bought a company that had $500 million worth of revenue. And so I went from a, a company with 250 employees to 2,500 employees, and all of a sudden, a lot of debt, global operations, sales in 70 countries, engineering, all these other kinds of things. And then I became chairman and CEO of that company and ran it for six or seven years, kind of trial by fire. Bob, let me just ask you a little bit about that, because one of the things I've seen with business people that I know is not everybody is capable of going up the ladder of complexity in business. It's very different to run a 10-person company versus a 50-person company versus a 2,000-person company. Do you feel like you had that capability early on or you had to kind of grow a lot in order to keep up with the trajectory of your career? When I was running the 250-person company, everybody in the management team had a graduate degree. Everybody was a pro. Everybody knew that they were doing. When I bought the 2,500, the business, I thought the management team of the small organization was better. So I've always relied on hiring really good people who know what they do. I pay more than people usually make because I need to have really good people. If you get bad people, you can't run. If you get people that don't know what they're doing or don't have the initiative, it's just really hard to make stuff happen. So my success has been surrounding myself with great people. And when I went in there, I found myself as a teacher. I, they literally made up t-shirts that said, Perkowitz University on them. And then people around the company, because you'd walk in and they'd say, okay, we're going to do a strategic plan here. This is how you do it with a big organization. So going to graduate school for business while I was running a business made everything very real. And then, like I say, the trial by fire of walking in there, but get good people is, is, was the secret for me and always has been. Beyond that, that, which I think is totally crucial, what do you think are the characteristics of a strong CEO? 
Everything cues off the CEO. I, when I was running a later business, Cornerstone Brands, I had seven CEOs, and and each of those had management teams, another business with thousands of employees. And you can just watch the impact of a CEO on a business. If they aren't driven, the business isn't driven. If they're not focused, the business isn't focused. So you have to be dedicated to what you you're trying to do. You have to instill if you are selling environmentally sustainable, socially responsible women's furnishings, clothes and home furnishings, you got to make sure that those are values that you have and other people in the company have, because otherwise you won't have good products and good service. The values, the one thing about the thing is when you run a big company, it kind of takes over your whole life. Like I looked at it that I'd go into these black holes for seven years because it was as a CEO, you're responsible for all the external relations, board of directors, governments, local communities where you're building factories. You got to see this. And so that's why there's a CEO and COO thing. CEO has to take everything and put it together. COO kind of runs the uh, inside of the business. But uh, yeah, so I, I would say you got to have the values, you got to have the determination, and you have to have the, the skills to do it. I, that would be my big three things. Were, were you kind of growing in confidence during this time, or did you have that confidence early on about like your ability to do this? I've always been overconfident. I've walked into it. This sounds insane, but I can't imagine a business right now. Like if you said, go run Hertz Rent-A-Car or go run the Methodist Church in America, I can't imagine an organization that I couldn't walk into, spend the first six, eight, ten weeks learning about stuff, and six months into it, have a revised strategic plan, board, everything, and then move it forward in a productive way. It's a transferable skill set if you look at it as managing people that are getting jobs done. That's got to be a really a kind of a powerful feeling to think that and to know that you can change the trajectory of an organization and make it do better. Well, it's not just an organization. Having spent six years on the Sierra Club Foundation board and being on the club, being finance committee and through all that kind of stuff, and then environmental defense, I looked at what all the environmental organizations were doing in America, and Sierra Club is grassroots, EDF is grass tops. They're doing a lot of great work, but the entire middle of America, you know, there's so many people that want to do something about climate change, but nobody's asking them, nobody's helping them do anything. And I said, how do I do that? How do I reach those people? People. And I didn't want to start yet another environmental organization. So we recreated a, a whole new paradigm. We decided to join other organizations rather than have people join us. It's critical thinking. You just say, hey, we got this problem. What do we do about it? Is this is what's going on getting the job done? What do we do about it? Well, you've made a lot of allusions to the environmental groups that you've been part of and the one that you've started. What is the source of that interest of yours? When do you trace that back to? I trace that back to entirely to my wife. Okay. You know, so we've been together for 35 years and she's been big in the environmental movement. She's the only person that's been president and chair of the Sierra Club. She's been Earth Justice Board. She's chair of Confluence Philanthropy. I'm going through and I'm, you know, in my 50s and she's going out making a difference in the world, trying to make the world a better place. I'm trying to make a few extra dollars. And 
a guy by the name of Tom Stenberg, who was CEO of Staples. I was out at dinner with him. We were on a board together. And I said, hey, Tom, you know, I'm, I'm not having as much fun as I used to. And, and he talked me through it. He basically said, no matter what you do, you're not going to change your lifestyle. Go out and do what your heart tells you you need to do. And boom, you know, then, you know, it took me probably five years to get out all the mess that I was in at that time. But, you know, it gave me a North Star that said, hey, you can make a difference in the world if you can figure it out. Go figure it out. And so that's the combination of the wife just being day in, day out trying. I joke that she wakes up every morning and she says, how can I make the world a better place? And she rolls over and looks at me and tries to make me a better person to make the world a better place. I'm kind of curious about how you met her, because it seems like not an obvious match, uh, an environmentalist and a businessman, not necessarily. Where did you meet her and how did that start out? Her father invented the hair curler and he took his money made and he built two hotels and a shopping center in Acapulco. And so she grew up in kind of a business world and the and her father died when she was like 18 years old and she had to take over the family business. And there's long stories about this thing, about what she went through. But when she was, I was going to say 27 and I was like 34, we went to the Harvard Owner President Management Program, three years, a month, a year for three years. Each of us took four years. We were the first session and then the last session. And we, we had that that's where we met is at, is at Harvard. And I got done with her. I said, just, I, I thought she was really fantastic. So I pursued her and then we got married. Was that degree program worth doing? The owner president management program is about 120 students. They run three cohorts a year. They break it up and they say 30% are going to be international. 20% are going to be finance. And then they put you in groups of all these business owners, and then you go through, you know, the regular case study method. You have your small group of eight or 10 people, and you got to write papers every day and reports. So that's that's what that is. It's a thing for business people to up their skills, refresh their skills, just get back in the game in a big way. Lisa was the youngest person there, and I was probably the second youngest person in that course. And I did it because, again, you know, just I got to get the socialization skills. The stuff that I know didn't come from osmosis. It came from a heck of a lot of education and schooling and, and trial by fire and learning from the other managers around me and stuff. So my life has been a giant learning experience. It seems like most of your companies have a lot of the sort of direct marketing to consumer thread. Tell me a little about that and how does that apply in the eco-America space? When I sold the window coverings company in the Newell Rubbermaid, I'm going to say 1988 or somewhere around there. And then I decided I was going to invest in the, and I invested in a small catalog company, about a $15 million company that was mailing out catalogs to sell window coverings. And I thought that that was interesting. Gave them some money, bought a part of the company came in once a month, started coming in once a week, and then I became CEO of that. We increased the size of the business like fivefold and the profits 15-fold in like three years because of the skill sets that I had that the other owner didn't have. 
that taught me the beginnings of direct marketing. You can send somebody a catalog or put out a website, and if you can get somebody to come to it, you can get them to buy things. And then we made that business so successful that a company by the name of Cornerstone Brands, which was owned by Madison Dearborn in Chicago and Chase, made us an offer to buy the company. And we sold the company to them. I became on the board And then we hit a great recession. And of the eight or nine companies in the group, I was the only one that was making money. And the board asked, said, you know, what can we do to turn this thing around? I'm at the board meeting and I said, you know, give me six weeks. I'll put together a plan, gave them a plan. And then they said, you're going to be CEO of this thing. So all of a sudden I'm running a, a, at that time, a $700 million company that's mailing out a million hundred page catalogs a day. You know, so we have outlet stores, we have all the websites, and the catalogs draw in the business. The distribution center, a million square feet, 33 football fields under one roof, fire escapes in the middle of the building. I believe 30% of the thing was 70-foot dark high bay, totally automated warehouse storage stuff just to have all this merchandise going in and out. That's how I got into it. I bought a little company. I got bought into a little company, sold the company to a big company, and they made me president and CEO of that company. Is there a, a central insight that you learned about the consumer from doing that? Like what works? What works is focusing on specific consumer groups. The more general you are, the least effective you are. And this is for politics or for eco-America. You know, when we do programs, like we have a Climate for Health program, Health and Climate Change. It's got about 50 national organizations in it. But if I just do a health program, nobody buys into it. If I, if I do a pediatrician health program and a public health program and a psychology program and an internist program, you know, like the pediatricians want to know about children in climate. Every slide, if there's a little kid, they stare at that slide and, and then they learn. And the psychologists want to know about the mental health implications. So if you want to engage somebody on an issue, the more specific and focused you can be, the better you'll be at uh, at engaging them. And the more general and abstract you are, you know, I sell clothes, you get nothing. I sell contemporary trendy clothes, eh, you get almost nothing. But you just keep adding adjectives to that. And then all of a sudden, you'll get get some focus where they'll be in. Everybody's sick of me saying this, but I say, who's the audience and what do you want them to do? So you got to pick a group of people. I'm having dinner in a couple of days with a guy who's run a, a few governor's campaigns and done a bunch of stuff. And he's trying to get out of the political world into the world. And he just doesn't get it that Another thing is the whole concept of social identity, that people don't vote or buy on the basis of, hey, they, they do it on social identity. You vote not on issues. You don't vote on values. The American Voter, a book called The American Voter, 1960, you know, 600 pages, thousands of footnotes, so a cited book on American politics out there in history, that book, uh, you know, is the first one to say people don't vote issues, they don't vote values, they vote social identity. So you appeal to them in groups through emotional things, and then you move the group, and then they become locked in this little sphere, like, I'm not going to mention any political groups right now, but even if it becomes irrational, you still stick with your social identity, because you know, pluralistic ignorance, the people all around you, that's what you know. You don't know how your car works, but if somebody says, 
hey, that Ford is better than that Chevrolet pickup truck. You, somehow you become sucked into a Ford pickup truck world. All those things are real. What's the founding story for Eco America? Founding story is Sierra Club, EDF, a whole bunch of people out there care about climate change. Nobody's asking them. Nobody's helping them. How do you reach all these people? I was speaking to somebody at one of the organizations. I said, how come we don't have a big college program? And they said, college kids don't give us money. I have to market to the environmentalists. If I'm an activist, I got to market to activists. So what we did is I decided that how do I reach mainstream Americans? Went to Stanford Research Institute. They have a thing called Val's Lifestyle and Values survey, and then they help identify large groups of people that will absorb, retain, and diffuse ideas and act on them. And I said, I want to do climate change. Tell me in who in America, who I would get. And the first thing that came out was higher education. So the origin story of Eco America is how do you reach middle America? You go to Stanford, you ask them, they tell you to go to college students and do program for colleges and universities. So we did every major national program on higher education and climate change, five of them. And we, uh, you know, we're mission driven. So we move on, we hand them off. And four of those five programs are still going on today. But we, and then we decided to flip other sectors. Okay. I'm not sure I quite understood that, but I'm getting there. Did you build a team? How do you go about building Eco-America from the get-go? Okay, so the first thing that you decide, the audience is higher education. I can go out and I can start a student group power shift or whatever. And we decided that we were going to grab the institutions and, and we started a... Some, I hired uh, one person to kind of that was cultivating to run the organization. We went through the research project. We decided on a plan, which was to engage American College and University President Climate Commitment. Then we went out and we picked out the 100 most environmentally sensitive colleges and universities in America. And we asked the CEOs if they would like to lead a university effort to do climate. We got about 16 of them that said yes. We put them on a letterhead. And then we went out to the top 400 schools in America, colleges, and said, will you join? We did not go public until we had a 100 universities and colleges say that they were committed, that they had signed an agreement to go climate neutral and measure and report their emissions every year. So there's this path of the idea building up. And then there's another path of staffing up. Then you say you're going to do that. How do we measure and report emissions for college and universities? How do we reach university presidents? And we partnered with two other organizations, an organization called Second Nature and ACHI, the American Association of Sustainability in Higher Education. We said, you guys, we're going to do the, the marketing program and bring them in. You guys are going to manage the universities and you guys are going to do the accountability, the measuring and reporting. So we put together a team of organizations you know, there's probably seven or eight people in Eco-America at this time. And then we built all the tools and resources so that the universities could actually go climate neutral, but also to engage their students and faculty in the process. So we did student quality of life surveys. We did institutional surveys about sustainability and figured out what to give them. So how much did that change the colleges that undertook that program and did it grow beyond those initial ones? Five years into it, we had 700 colleges and universities 
signed to go climate neutral in an era where nobody thought it was possible to go climate neutral. And they were measuring and reporting their emissions and it was 22 state university systems. We always said we we're going to try to get the universities, then we we're going to get the students coming into school and we we're going to get the students coming out of school. So we partnered with monster.com and did greencareers.org. So when they went out, we could get them into a career. We partnered. And I think still today, the uh, Princeton Review, you know, we partnered with them to rate every school on sustainability. And they're still every year doing the green honor roll. So we, we institutionalized it. And then we partnered with the American Association of Community Colleges and the EPA and the Department of Energy and about 60 companies. And we put together a complete curriculum for community colleges, for workforce development, for energy conservation, renewable energy, all that kind of stuff. So we built the whole infrastructure. I think it's the biggest accomplishment in my life is shifting higher education from awareness and, you know, some people doing 20% commitments to right now, today, they're probably still 10 years ahead of the rest of society on climate action. It sounds like you then went on to take other verticals, other areas of society. What was next? Once you build it up, you start getting diminishing marginal returns. And then you know you set up the thing, you know it's going to continue forever, and then we pass off the program to our partners. MacArthur Foundation decided in 2013 or thereabouts that they wanted to get into climate change, and they wanted to do a people-centric approach like Eco-America was. They asked us to write a couple papers, and they gave us a whole boatload of money to help them build a strategic plan to address climate change, and we did that. And, and part of it uh, we analyzed every social movement in America over the prior centuries and say, why do some of them succeed and some of them fail? Why has immigration failed? Why is Me Too passed over the hump, you know, Sisyphus? And uh, and then we made a list of 12 factors that you needed to have to have a, a program change society. The biggest thing is institutional engagement. You don't pass a law and then society changes. It bubbles up from our great democracy in this cauldron of bajillions of cities and towns and states and whatever. Somebody comes with an idea, they copy it, they copy it, they copy it, and then it becomes federal law. Everything that's in the IRA Act that was passed Somebody's done that before. It's all just been assembled. And, and that's and maybe there's new things in there. But at any rate, that's how it works is you just build it up. I'm kind of guaranteeing it was more difficult than that. But what did you tackle after higher education? We narrowed it down from about 30 sectors, agriculture or whatever, with different sets of criteria to five and then three. And we said there has to be concentration in the sector. There has to be a few organizations that if you get those organizations, you get the whole sector. And so like if you take faith, if you get the top 20 denominations in America, you essentially get everybody that goes to church. You get like nine. And if you take health and you get pediatricians, you get every baby that's born. You get internists. So we picked these three sectors, health and faith and local communities, on the basis of affinity. Will they move toward climate solutions if we help them? On the concentration, on their ability to move the public, are they truly trusted messengers? And then we decided to take, we decided to join them rather than have them join our programs. I'd go up to the guy who's head of, let's say, the American Public Health Association, care about climate change, yes. 
It's the biggest issue facing America and the world in public health. What are you doing about it? I got 60 different issue areas in APHA. One of them is environment, and a fourth of environment is climate change. If it's such a big issue, how come you have so little resources? A, I don't know what to do. B, I don't have any money. C, I really don't run this organization. We've got all these boards and committees, and they set the strategy and they don't care about climate change. So when they go through the planning process and they say, you're going to work on obesity and opioids and whatever and whatever, you know, climate change isn't on that list. And by the way, I don't have any money. And I say, if we can take care of all of those problems, will you do a major program on climate change? Sure. Sign a little letter. Sometimes it takes us two years to get through the governance process, but we help them take care. They don't have the power to set the strategy, but they can join a coalition of medical organizations in a common campaign and things, which is why we have the Climate for Health program, the Blessed Tomorrow program, because it's not about eco-America. You can't find us hardly anywhere. It's about the programs and the partners. The Lutheran Church wants to be relevant to its members. It wants to attract young people. It needs a climate program. Who can they go to help them with the climate program? As far as I know, we're the only people out there that can do large-scale public climate programs for institutions. And so they turned us. And now we're doing the climate programs for 89 different organizations at this moment. Can you compare what it's been like for you to run a for-profit business with running Eco America? What are the different kinds of challenges and joys that you have found in that one arena versus the other? It's so hard. In in a business, everything has a number. If you're working on the shipping dock, if you're answering telephones, if you are going out and selling people stuff, everything is numbers. And you can just say, here's our OKRs, here's our KPIs, whatever you want to call them. These are the numbers by which we're managing this business. If you're doing society, if you're Obama with the Obama Foundation and you're trying to raise the next generation of leaders to run America in the right direction and you're starting with kids in high school, how do you measure three years in or five years in? You can say, we've trained. These are the inputs. I've trained this many people. I've done this. But you can't get to the output. So it's very hard in business. The results of what you do Three months later, a year later, visible. When you're doing social change with people, especially when there's so many other things that impact from the outside, right now America's drying up. That is having a bigger impact to to move Americans toward climate solutions than what eco-America is. so, So I would say that one thing is, you know, metrics and measurement to guide your work. You don't have that. And then therefore, You know, there's a whole bunch of people that are business people that want to solve climate change, but they're used to a world, so they don't give money to social change things. You know, they just did a survey four weeks ago, five weeks ago, inside philanthropy, and they asked all these big foundations, is climate change a big issue? And like 95% said it's this extraordinarily important issue, and yet only like 5% of them are doing anything about it because they don't know how to deal with it. You can feed hungry kids school lunches and stuff. But so at any rate, hard to measure. A lot of the people in NGO world are are working toward voters or they're working toward constituents like veterans or whatever it is. Identifying the audience, getting them to do something, it's much harder. And and therefore the people and the institutions work to, I shouldn't say this, but the institutions work for institutional reasons. It's in business 
having the most efficient sales department is what gets you promoted. In NGOs, if the more people that you have reporting to you and the bigger your budget is, that's what a measure of success is. So it's kind of like the exact opposite. It's efficiency and effectiveness versus, you know, scale and uh, yeah. What about in terms of personal gratification? There's got to be a different feeling to be, I don't know, growing a business, making a lot of money, uh, hopefully, versus seeing changes like you did in colleges and universities and faith communities around climate change. How do you feel personally about that difference? I refer to it as kind of like passing through the veil, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, when you when you when you got to feed your family and you got to do it kind of narrows your focus to the extent that you can create some breathing room, some space around yourself. Then you can start looking at other things. And I went through that whole process, you know, and because I came from from places that didn't have a lot of money. I was able to understand and appreciate other people in, in ways that I might not have been, been able to. I mean, you, you know as well as anybody that there's been tremendous efforts society-wide to try to put us on the right course with respect to climate, but there's also kind of a gathering storm. There, it's A lot of things are getting worse. Where are you in terms of how optimistic versus pessimistic about if we're getting where we need to go to not completely mess up our planet? I have not been moody. I've always been really pragmatic until the last couple of years. And I thought we were going down the wrong path. And then all of a sudden, you know, Biden got elected, whole of government approach to climate change, put in a fantastic team of the most knowledgeable, experienced people, Jane Lubchenco, Gina McCarthy, John Kerry, Michael Regan. I mean, he put in the best people. He has the House, he has the Senate, and I thought, finally, we're going to do something because the science is clear. Everything about climate change is grounded in science. We have to be here to do it. And we were not coming close. And the Biden administration does not get anywhere near the credit that it deserves for what they've done. Dozens, hundreds of executive orders, four major spending bills. So at any rate, when they got elected, I was really happy. They were build back better for a year. It didn't pull through. I was depressed at the end of 2021, beginning of 2022, when the reconciliation theory failed and Manchin said, you know, I got to wait another month. I went off to Europe and and I thought, well, it's it's kind of like the end game. And I'm riding my bike somewhere in France and all of a sudden I hear Manchin, Schumer, what the heck is this? And from from nobody knowing about it till it gets passed and signed in less than four weeks, the biggest climate act. That has put us on a path right now where we have a chance to do what the science says, which is keep it below two degrees, 50% reduction by 2030, 100% by 2050. If we do that, there's analysis by the International Monetary Fund that says the global south will be like $70 trillion richer in 50 years if we develop with clean energy as opposed to fossil fuel energy. But anyway, we where I am right now is we are on a path where we can do it you got to put the pedal to the metal. you got to take the momentum we have and work as hard as we can right now to get that last. Right now, we're, we've got to do a 50% reduction. We're headed to a 40% reduction. we got to do a little bit more. But when I watch what California did last week, cars, 
no more gas cars 2035. Massachusetts, the other states got to follow in on that. You know, then I watch Massachusetts, you know, they just passed a bill right after the IRA that's going to get them to a 50. So the states and the corporations can probably get us to a 50% reduction, even if the federal government doesn't do anything else. But the federal government can and needs to still do more. Everything is carrots in all the climate bills and the COVID relief bill at the end of 2020 and the infrastructure bill at the end of 2021 and the Inflation Reduction Act last month. You know, there's a lot of money, but there's only one stick in it. You know, and that is a $900 a ton methane emissions fee that goes up to like $1,200 in a few years. So anyway, long answer to a short question. We have a chance. I'm hopeful. I'm For the first time, I think we're on a path where we might be. When you look at Europe's doing and China's doing and now America's doing, we have a chance here. And we just got to grasp that ring as we go by. I don't think, as you've sort of indicated, that people broadly understand what the Biden administration has done, particularly in the Inflation Reduction Act, as they've so lovingly called it. I know you've kind of analyzed it and distilled it. What are the big things in that that are going to make a difference? I think the big things are hidden things that people are not putting out. Like they have 91 separate funding provisions in there. So next time it goes to the Supreme Court, they're not going to be able to say, you can't do that because you're not being specific enough. They've taken the Supreme Court thing out of the climate battle and every piece of legislation going forward is going to be taking that last Supreme Court ruling into account. They have defined the cost of carbon and this sounds geeky, but every time the EPA has passes a ruling, they have to do an economic analysis. And by increasing the cost of carbon, it makes the scope of activities of what they can do broader and more effective. And so there's things like that, but the bill itself I went through all 758 pages and I counted this. So this number is probably wrong because I can't count to big numbers, but it's 91 separate spending provisions, I think, in there. And 80% of it is tax credits. 20% of it is new spending. It's over 10 years. The wind industry and the solar industry has been living on two-year tax credits that have to keep getting renewed. Those are out there for 10 years right now. They can develop their business with confidence. There's huge amounts of things for for residential, for consumers. $4,000 for a used electric car, $7,500 for a new one, heat pumps, efficiency things for your home. So there's a lot of benefits. And then for big business, there's $60 billion for nuclear. There's, There's all kinds of incentives for corporate America and for people in America. The way I refer to it is that everything that you did for clean energy now costs about 30% less because of this bill. And, and I do have to say that Biden did the Justice 40 commitment. He said 40% of federal spendings. Well, you know, right now, today in America, about 50, 55% of Americans don't pay any federal taxes. So if you've got a bill that's 80% tax credits, lower income people, predominantly people of color, are left out of this. My math, this is totally Bob's math, is that, you know, instead of getting 40% of the benefits to people who are getting screwed by the pollution, who have been harmed by environmental issues and climate issues for years, it's less than 15% of the money is going to the overall spending of the Biden administration is going to justice issues, just like with the COVID relief stuff. Wealthy people got a lot wealthier and 
and a lot, a lot of other people got nothing. So, but it's a fantastic thing for moving America. When you look at what Obama did and how it created the battery industry and Tesla and all the other stuff and transformed America, the Biden administration has done with the four spending bills is 10 times what we spent then. And I think it's going to transform the world over the next decade. I think the intersection between climate and politics is a very frustrating and complicated one where one of our two major parties has generally become a haven for climate deniers or less interested by far in pushing government-based climate solutions, although there is some variation in the party. And by the way, I think a lot of the stuff that Biden did is at risk of uh, not being augmented or being overturned if the Republicans come back into power in Congress and in the presidency under somebody who is a climate denier, which seems quite possible. How do you think about that intersection between the partisanship and its alignment with climate beliefs at this moment? Well, uh, okay, so there's two different parts of it. So it's repo- the Republican perspective versus the Democrat. And then, by the way, I run a C3, so let me just say I'm talking for myself, not for Eco-America at this point. There's the Republican versus the Democratic perspective. And then there's, I think that there's issues within the Progressive Party about how to solve it that have held us back as almost as much as the Republicans have held us back. But with the Republican thing, the genius of the Biden administration is these are tax credits and incentives that last for a decade. So it's not like them passing a law. Like there are a lot of executive orders where Biden has said the federal government is going to be a 45% reduction by 2030 or whatever it is, or that the federal government has to buy this much of this. And just like Trump came in and overturned 100 Obama things and Biden came in and, and in his first second day, he overturned virtually everything that Trump did. But most of what's been done right now has been done with the, you know, the COVID relief and omnibus bill, the infrastructure bill, the IRA bill, the CHIPS Act. There's $60 billion for climate in the CHIPS Act that nobody knows about. And so that's going to be hard. You can't take away tax credits. You can't take away 10-year tax credits. And I'm worried about that. And I'm glad that some things are happening you know, if they can keep the Democrats can keep the House or the Senate and the presidency for two years, it increases our odds of climate success by 50 percent. So there's that. The Republicans, you know, there's there's basically two things. They hate government. Right. They don't want any big government. And then there's the ties of 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 climate change candidates, which are progressive to issues like homosexuality and abortion. If you're a Roman Catholic or a Southern Baptist, you think the worst thing in the world is abortion. And how could people kill life? And then the same candidate is for climate change. There's too much dissonance for you. You vote social identity and the people around you, it's, it's, it's life. So there's that. And so long as climate change solutions are framed as big government regulations control by progressives, we're going to lose. The whole thing about putting a price on carbon, obviously the most effective way to do it economically, the least attractive way to do it politically. And we spent a whole lot of time going down that path right now. We should have learned with the COVID bill and the the other bills. Those were all carrots too. We should have learned years ago that carrots are going to be the way to win. Give people money 
And and by the way, there's been studies come out that say that giving financial incentive for good behavior is more effective than giving financial penalties for bad behavior. So that's the Democrat side. The Republican side, you know, as they watch Lake Powell have less water in it than before they put a dam in it, as we have for most of the last 60 days, unbelievable record temperatures across America, across Europe, across People are, when they run out of water and they, you know, they're going to start, like right now in the, in the IRA, people don't realize it, but there's like the 12 Republican senators or congressmen that have gotten earmarks in that bill to build dikes and dams in their city for water, even though they're denying the climate changes exist and all that other stuff. So you've been, I think, is it 15 years at Eco America now? You've a good, a good decade and a half, more or less, you've seen, you know, with the Biden administration, such significant changes at a governmental level, you've seen a lot of changes in these institutions. What is your aim for the next decade? Are you going to continue at this? Is Eco America? What are you thinking going forward? Okay, well, I you have to give credit to the Eco America team for the first six years or seven years I was chairman, but I, I wasn't actively into the day to day. I was doing other stuff. But you were funding it also, right? Yeah, yeah, providing yeah. funding for it, and and I created it. But uh, other people did most of the work, and then I jumped in 2013, 2014 is when I said, "Hey, this is really fun." Let's go out and save the world. And we are making, like I say, we've got, you know, it's like we were locked in and we couldn't save the world. And all of a sudden somebody's opened the door and there's actual chance for us to save the world. And so I am more motivated, more excited, more interested, more determined than I have been at any time since Eco-America started because I see the way to go to get us out of this giant mess that we're in. We are doing something called Local Action National Purpose, where we're going from these national organizations to all the local communities. And we've targeted 90 districts, federal congressional districts that are swing districts or in play, you know, and we that have at least... 42% of people say climate change is a big concern and have a higher than average BIPOC, right? So those are our three criteria. We pick 90 districts. I'm trying to raise another 3 million bucks so that I can pour money into those things. And that's, so many things are locked in Republican, locked in Democrat. We've got to go with the movable middle. I think we can do it. I think it's going to be interesting to see how Citizens Climate Lobby, Climate Leadership Council, some of these groups that have promoted price on carbon so long, can they can they metamorphize size into something that's going to you know keep this momentum going right now? We all have to move society toward climate change. It's no longer a technical issue. It's no longer a cost issue. It is a people issue, and we've got to move society toward climate. And that's what we're trying to do. There, there is a ton of money going into, you know, the Bezos Earth Fund, numerous venture capitalists that are putting money into companies that are that are trying to profit off of uh, making better climate solutions or technologies that are useful. Do you track that world of sort of climate entrepreneurship and how do you think we're doing in that area? When you talk about like Bill Gates is investing in with breakthroughs, breaking investing in a lot of breakthrough strategies that are really going to help. 
There's those of us who believe that we have the solutions, that wind and solar, and we should take all those billions of dollars and deploy, build a grid, put the energy in on one side and get it on the other side and do that as fast as we can. There are other people that are spending hundreds of billions on fusion, right? And and uh, and yeah, they might get it so they can generate electricity in three or four years, and then it might take them seven or 10 years to build a plant, and that electricity might cost 21 cents a kilowatt hour as opposed to free, but we're working on a lot of technical solutions, and I'm all for that. I mean, I want everything that we can do, but we're not working enough on building the public support and political will we need to sustain all the aspects of climate change. I think when you solve climate change, you also solve a lot of the social problems in America as opposed to vice versa. Bob, is there a question I should have asked you that I haven't? I think you should ask me, what can I do and what can people do if they really worry about climate change? How can they make a difference in the issue? Answer that question. Okay. I think the most important thing to do is lead by example, to do stuff in your life, make sure that you've got solar panels in your area if you can afford it, that you are driving a green car that you can afford it, that you are out there voting for local initiatives, that you are buying and doing things so maybe you reduce your meat consumption by half. I don't think anything is really about sacrifice. You don't have to. You'll be healthier. It'll save you money. And lead by example. Live your life in a way that contributes to climate solutions to the extent that you can. Be part of the solution. I've decided to eliminate all of my emissions in my life, calculating my plane flights, my house, you know, that kind of stuff and buying five years worth of emission credits so that I can, so I can say, so lead by example to the extent that you can. I think that's a good advice for anybody. And I, I'm honored to have the chance to talk to you today. Anything else you want to say? Thank you, Nathaniel. Nice getting to meet you. I hope we get a chance to work together sometime. Sounds good. That was Bob Perkowitz. Bob is at ecoamerica.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.